2: California's oldest prison has got a new name. San Quentin is now called the San Quentin Rehabilitation Center. And this is a prison that was already known for its college classes, arts programs, and for the incarcerated journalists who write newspaper articles and produce podcasts from inside. But Governor Newsom is hoping a major overhaul of the prison and new programs for everything from therapy to education and job training will be a model for prisons across the state.
0: How do we
3: serve the community? Knowing that 30,000 people every single year come out of our system, 30,000 through CDCR, every single year, that's reality. And how are people coming back? Are they ready to reintegrate in society? They're ready to be
0: fully participatory in the life of their city and their county, our state and our nation, or are they bitter? We want to be the preeminent restorative justice facility in the world. That's the goal. San Quentin is iconic. San Quentin is known worldwide. If San Quentin can do it, it can be done anywhere else.
1: So what Governor Newsom is saying is that the California prison system as we know it right now is currently broken. And we need to get to a system that gets people home and keeps them home with their families. So what Newsom proposes in a nutshell is better programming,
4: better buildings, and better relationships between custody and those incarcerated.
2: Those are two incarcerated journalists at San Quentin, Steve Brooks and Ryan Pagan. They're both producers for the Uncuffed podcast, which is a show made by incarcerated people in California prisons. Uncuffed often explores the divide between prison staff and incarcerated people. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on The California Report magazine, Uncuffed is going to share a story with us about a moment when that wall between correctional officers or COs and incarcerated men broke down just a little bit at San Quentin because of some of the recent changes at the prison. It happened at a game of pickleball.
1: You had a lot of incarcerated people that were kind of standing around like, what the hell is going on today? You know, it was a day unlike any other day that we had seen at San Quentin.
4: Everyone gathered there that day was there for pickleball.
1: What's pickleball? have no idea. Steve? (laughs) Man, I couldn't tell you what pickleball is uh, at that time either. I thought it had something to do with pickles, something to do with balls, but I'm from the ghetto, so I really didn't know. But it was a weird, crazy new game. We was all learning together. I was a server number two who's serves? where he's standing.
4: So you give the ball to your partner. And what's he gonna say? Two, 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 two. That's exactly right. So that's Roger Belair, pickleball enthusiast who's introduced the game of pickleball to San Quentin.
1: So pickleball is like table tennis on steroids. It's a smaller area taped off of the court, and it's it's you have a racket and you have a ball that's really light like a wiffle ball, and you kind of play back and forth like tennis. Except that it's not a racket, it's a paddle.
2: Damn it.
4: So Steve. For someone who complains about their knees all the time, <laughs> I was actually surprised to see you out there playing pickleball. Oh, hell no. I'm tripping out, right? I see you out there with Dr. Paczynski. And usually, you know, with staff, we keep it cordial. We say hi and bye. But I've never seen anyone give a high five, uh, you know, being so close.
1: Like, what did that feel like? It felt weird. I was just, like, taken aback. I was constantly looking at the people on the sidelines, the officers and other incarcerated people, while I was also trying to play the game because I felt a little self-conscious about this this human interaction that we were engaging in. But I have to say it was quite fun. Uh, we did bump rackets a couple of times. We did high five each other. There was a lot of smiles and laughs. And uh, at the end of the day, I was glad that I actually got out there even though it was a weird experience.
4: So that kind of goes into what Gavin Newsom was proposing was to create an environment where custody and staff can interact with the incarcerated.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Now, when I see Dr. Brzezinski, we engage and interact with each other a lot more. We're a lot friendlier to each other. Uh, she smiles at me, hey, Steve, you know, and it's, it's 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 way different from before. Well, that's maybe
4: because you guys won too. Because absolutely. I think if you lost, I don't think she would be talking to you.
1: Well, bad knees or not, I still got game. Okay. <laughs> the craziest thing that day,
4: was the warden, Oak Smith, making an appearance on the court? I never thought that I would see Oak Smith out there playing pickleball with the incarcerated.
1: Uh, yeah, I have to agree. But when I seen him in those shorts, those blue shorts and that uh, red, white and blue headband and, and T-shirt, I knew he had came to play. He also had this toothpick in his mouth. He gave him this real serious Clint Eastwood look. And so once he really took to the court, he was serious about his game and he ended up flying into the net. Happy to be a part
2: of it. You know? Oh, I knew Oak was going to fall. I knew
4: it. That was Miss Oates, medical staff here at San Quentin, who happened to be right in the middle of the action while being interviewed.
1: Yeah, I have to say it was a little crazy. I thought the alarm was going to go off. I uh, kind of backed away a little bit, make sure I wasn't nowhere near his fall. Yeah, because he had
4: blood on 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 his hands, on his knees. Like, I was terrified. As soon as he got up, I was thinking, man better get out of his way.
1: Yeah, I was just surprised and took it so serious, the game.
0: All right, this is Ron. This is Oak. We went uh, three for three today on the court. Had a lot of fun, some minor injuries.
1: So that was Ron Broomfield, another warden here at San Quentin, who was out there playing with Warden Oaksmith.
4: When Oak Smith was out there and he had his headband on and he had his blue shorts, right, and he was playing pickleball alongside... With incarcerated people, he was basically setting the tone for the rest of custody, and so I think when custody seen that,
1: they were able to open up and engage in the game that day. Oh uh, yeah, Ron. I think to your last point, uh, I think that's really what set the tone for other custody personnel to come over and play as well. They actually had correction officers out there that day in full uniform who took to the court. And one of them was Officer
0: Fink Bonner. Been here for roughly nine years. It was pretty cool to be able to see, you know, everyone out there on the yard enjoying it. It was a beautiful day for it. And uh, being able to have custody staff and, you know, non-custody there and, uh, you know, learning the game and being able to enjoy it together. So when I seen the the warden lay out with the toothpick still in his mouth, lay out for the ball, I was like, oh man, this dude is serious about his pickleball game. And, like, ever since then, you know, it kind of just, like, eased the nerves and, uh, you know, of course, like I said, the last thing in the back of my mind was, dude, if I I lose to one of these inmates, I got to hear it for the next 20 years until I can retire. So, there's uh, a no greater way to uh, bring two parties together than, you know, competitiveness and, of course, you know, sports on top of it all is, uh, you know, the big equalizer.
4: Fink is absolutely right. Sports is the great equalizer and he seems to be on board, but... At the end of the day, I'm still incarcerated and he's still a correctional officer. And how many of his colleagues are in line with playing with us, playing sports every day?
1: So Ryan, after this pickleball game here saying, Quentin, do you feel comfortable enough to walk up to an officer and say, hey, let's play a game?
4: Yeah, I mean, I would have no problem asking. For me, I only saw a few officers that participated so I don't really know the mindset of the rest of those that didn't show up to that event and how they feel about incarcerated playing alongside of them with you know their colleagues.
1: Well, I think if I was to put myself in an officer's position, it'd be the same as the position I'm in now. When I look around at other incarcerated people, they kind of look at me weird, like, what are you doing? And for them, it's the same. So I think it's just kind of being able to push back against that peer pressure from within your own is gonna be the biggest hurdle that we all gotta overcome.
4: But I I feel like, you know, us incarcerated men are willing to break those barriers. I don't mean to speak for every incarcerated person, right? But I I have an understanding of like the thoughts on why it's not acceptable to talk to custody. You don't wanna be looked at as a rat or as a brown noser or whatever.
1: Yeah, but I think the thing that keeps me motivated and hopeful is this idea that when I go back to society, I can't choose who my next door neighbor is. It may be an officer, it may be somebody who in prison that maybe I had a political difference with, but now I'm a member of society and I gotta be able to be a good neighbor to whoever my neighbors are.
2: That was Ryan Pagan and Steve Brooks, who are both producers of the Uncuffed podcast. Now, despite the success of that pickleball day, Ryan isn't sure those kinds of efforts are really enough to change the culture at San Quentin to one of rehabilitation like Governor Newsom is envisioning.
4: You know, I've seen just a few COs that got involved. Right. And so, like, what are the other ones thinking? Hmm. Right. Like, do are they buying into this whole idea of, you know, rehabilitation, All right, mm-hmm. Is this just a sham? There is a lot of skepticism mm. on whether or not the idea of rehabilitation is something that can happen.
2: Another Uncuffed producer, Tim Hicks, says pickleball is really just the start of this process to change the relationship between people who are incarcerated and correctional officers or COs.
1: Right now, they're formulating a team to play basketball against some of the incarcerated dudes right now. I was talking to one earlier today that said he'll he'll gather a team to play some flag football against some of the guys that's incarcerated. So pickleball have kind of started something, you know, it really has.
2: And Tim's right. Since that day of pickleball, prison staff and incarcerated men at San Quentin have been playing sports more informally. Just a few months ago there was a big basketball game. And these kinds of little changes in the interactions between COs and incarcerated people, they can mean a lot. Here's Ryan again, talking with Uncuffed producer Greg Eskridge about how even tiny changes in language can make a big difference.
4: The other night, actually, um, you know, a CO, while he was locking the bar, and, and you know, at 9 o'clock, they, they lock everyone up, and he was... Uh, locking every single cell door and as he was doing that he was telling people good night yeah and when he said good night i said good night and then when he went to the next cell and then the the, the following cell you hear people saying good night and yeah. just that simple act alone you know made me think like there are good people out there you know it, it like it it made me feel i don't know what it is it just made yeah. me feel like See. like a exactly like a, a a human, not yeah. less than not not just an inmate, right, but just as a human being.
0: I know for me personally, I spent a lot of time in my life being invisible and making myself invisible because I had people in my life that were that were put, constantly putting me down, constantly ridiculing me, and I went out there into a society that did the same thing. So, so I just had this theme of, of being invisible. And with that invisibility came a lot of low self-esteem, came a lot of resentments, came a lot of anger. And so coming into this place, I experienced a lot of that from custody as well. I had a, I had a lot of authority issues back then, back, in, back years ago. But when this officer says night, he's actually making a point to say, "Hey, I see you guys." Not only do I, not only am I just saying good night to you. I'm calling you guys' name out, and when a person says your name, that means they they recognize you. You know, I I I have you have an identity to me.
2: That was an excerpt from the K L W Public Media podcast, Uncuffed. It was produced by Ryan Pagan, Steve Brooks, Greg Eskridge, Juan Haynes, Nina Ginsler Debs, Eric Abercrombie, Angela Johnston, and Eli Wirtschafter. My colleague, Leslie McClurg, who's a health correspondent at KQED, does a lot of stories about medicine, about the brain, and about innovations in science. She talks to a lot of smart people, and many of them came through elite schools and come from pretty privileged backgrounds. Recently, though, she stumbled
3: across a neuroscientist whose story floored her. My name is Alfredo Quiñones Hinojosa. I'm an active brain surgeon who specializes in brain cancer.
2: Today, everybody calls him Dr. Q, and he's a leading neurosurgeon at the Mayo Clinic. But he started out as Freddy, a 15-year-old migrant worker from Mexico who picked tomatoes in the San Joaquin Valley. Cold nights, not a lot to eat.
3: It was hard work.
2: Leslie brings us the story now of how Dr. Q risked everything to get from the fields To the operating room.
3: When Dr. Q
5: operates, he wants to make sure the brain is fully functioning so his patients are not asleep. That's why their eyes are wide open.
3: We're about to make incision. I specialize in awake brain surgery. And every patient, oh my gosh, they always tell me there's no possible way that I can have my surgery awake. And I say, you'll find the strength. We all have a strength within us to overcome the most adverse situations. You'll find the strength.
5: His own story of strength is featured in the Netflix series called The Surgeon's Cut, which is about elite doctors. Okay, We're cutting the skin right here,
3: very nicely.
5: Today, he spends most of his time in the operating room. But his life began in a tiny shack with dirt floors in Mexico.
3: I was born in January 2nd, 1968, in a small little town. Outside of Mexicali. Mexicali is the border town between the United States and California, and the north and then south, Baja California, the peninsula. His family lived at
5: the end of a railroad in a tiny village called Palaco. His parents worked on farms. They were teenagers when he was born.
3: Grew up out there in the fields.
5: He was the first of six children, even though they rarely had enough to eat. The home was filled with love, laughter, dancing.
3: The sounds of, you know, country music, ranchera music, mariachi music. Vicente Fernandez was a big, you know, person. I also remember the smells of tomatoes, the smells of cotton, watermelon, cantaloupe, you know, the colors of red and greens, intense colors, actually, because that's also part of my culture.
5: He passed the days running outside and stirring up trouble with his cousins and friends. I love to have a good time. I love to play. But he loved school. He never missed classes. His parents instilled the importance of an education. His teachers said he was going places.
3: And I love to read. I love to imagine. There were some difficult times. Uh, When I was about three years old, my little sister died. She developed a, a GI Bog, probably, and developed diarrhea, they got dehydrated. We have no access to medical care. We never made it on time for the doctors to be able to care for her.
5: Her name was Maricela. She was six months old when she died.
3: I have no doubt that somewhere subconsciously it's been linked to my own desire to help other people who may not have access to health care.
5: As Dr. Q got older, he started thinking more and more about what he'd heard about life on the other side of the border.
3: You know, I always saw the United States as a land of opportunity, the land of dreams.
5: Maybe he could go north someday, like his uncles.
3: My mom's uncles were braceros. They were the original people that came in the 50s and 60s to work the land for seasonal work. And I would say that at that very early age, My uncles were probably already planting a seed in this little boy thinking that one day maybe I will also go and explore the United States up north, el norte, what we call it, you know, that dream of a better life. But that dream became more of a necessity by the time I was about 14 years old when I realized that mom and dad didn't have much and I needed to work.
5: There's a scene in the Netflix documentary where Dr. Q demonstrates how he jumped the border fence near Calexico for the first time. Back then, the fence was a chain link with barbed wire rounds at the top. You could put
3: your hands right here. There was a fence that had holes in the wire. You can actually put your fingers. But now, I think it's gonna be really tough for me. I don't think I can hang on to this.
5: He clasps onto today's militarized wall. Towering steel bars rise about 12 feet above his head. It would be close to impossible today, but when Dr. Q was 15 years old, he managed to hurl himself over the wall.
3: Grabbing onto this right here, propelling my body over those barbed wires and landing on the other side. Then realizing the first time, you're about to get caught. And that's exactly what happened.
5: Border patrol agents detained Dr. Q overnight, but they released him the next day back to Mexico. He didn't give up. A few nights later, he successfully crossed.
3: I was a little tiger. You know, I would just hop the fence or get in the back of trucks. I figured out the way. And I went to the San Joaquin Valley, begged one of my uncles who was working in a farm to give me a job.
5: He started in cotton fields pulling weeds. He worked from sunrise to sunset. His hands were raw at the end of the day. But he was proud.
3: I remember when I came to work in the fields, you know, listening to White Snake, you know, Here I Go Again on My Own. I mean, imagine that song, Here I Am. I was on my own in the fields. I remember I left Mexicali probably weighing about 110 pounds. And I remember I went back that summer at about 92, 94 pounds. And he was just, I was just a skinny little kid. He made $700 that first summer. After
5: that, he went back and forth from Mexico to California every year for a while.
3: And every summer I would do the same things. So summers were dedicated to work. Over the next four years,
5: his skills advanced. He started driving tractors, then tomato harvesters, and eventually
3: huge cotton pickers. But he hated getting dirty all the time, and he felt invisible. The reality is that I wanted to challenge myself beyond what I was doing. I was 19 when I finally made the final jump, and I said, I'm gonna go back to the United States and stay a little bit longer, and I never went back. When he left Mexico
5: in 1987 for the last time, He says he had less than $63 in his pocket. By the time he reached LA, he had less than $3 left. He used a family connection to hitchhike to a farm in Fresno that was hiring.
3: He hoped it would be his last farm job. My cousin had dropped out of school. He was working in the fields with me, and I told him, I want to go to school and learn English. At $3.35 an hour, uh, it was gonna be tough. And he said to me, you're never going to do it. This is it. All of us have come to this country and have worked in the fields. And this is their is future. And I have to tell you, I felt like someone put a dagger in my heart. He refused to give up. He knew he had to make more money to pay for school.
5: Luckily, he landed a job as a welder for a railroad company.
3: And right around that time is when I moved to San Joaquin Delta College to learn English. I remember I, I joined the speech and debate team. It was a bold move for
5: a teenager who couldn't speak English. But the team took Dr. Q under their wing. They asked him to help research weekly topics, and he forged deep friendships.
3: And they started to talk to me about potentially applying to university.
5: One of his team members helped him fill out the applications, and Dr. Q began tutoring other students in statistics to make a little extra money. He carried a full load. He took on extra cleaning shifts at night and studied all weekend. This was the 80s, and new legislation had recently passed allowing undocumented workers to apply for legal status. So Dr. Q got a green card. His parents did too, and they now live in San Diego. It was a really different time than today, when migrant caravans are lined up at the border and so many undocumented people are struggling to get status. And the good news kept coming for Dr. Q. One day in 1992, he got an acceptance letter from UC Berkeley. He received a partial scholarship and student loans. He was 22 years
3: old. I just did my work and went to work and went to school. And here I am.
5: Clearly, he was brainy. He was paying his bills by tutoring students in organic chemistry, physics, and calculus. But Dr. Q is very understated. When he talks about it today, it sounds like graduating from UC Berkeley with the highest honors was a total
3: breeze. I had no idea that I was going to go to medical school. But I look back at my own past with my grandmother, Nana Maria who, by the way, if you look at pictures of her nowadays, the the older I get, the more I look like her. She was a Mexican curandera and partera. There's a town healer, you know, and a midwife. And she was amazing. And I said, I want to be able to help people the way my grandmother did. And someone said, well, what about medical school? I said, what about it? He
5: started asking more people about it, but most folks shot down the idea. And then a close friend told him, There was no way.
3: I said, oh, he said, I cannot do it. And every time someone tells me I cannot do it, I probably want it more. So I ended up applying and here we come, multiple acceptances to amazing medical schools. And that's how I ended up at Harvard.
5: At Harvard, for the first time in his life, he didn't try to work and study. He took out loans and scholarships covered the rest. And
3: then his citizenship came through. That's when Anna, my wife, and I got married. Gabriela was born towards the end of my medical school at Harvard, and I began to really think about what I wanted to do. And I got to tell you, I was fascinated about stimulating the brain, recording of the brain, doing brain surgery, unraveling the mysteries of learning and memory.
5: Other students, professors, and even close friends tried to deter him. They tried to push him toward primary care, but he didn't listen.
3: And here I am as a brain surgeon today.
5: He's very passionate about bringing healthcare to low-income communities. That's why he launched a series of webinars for young neurosurgeons who are learning the craft. And he also started the Mission Brain Foundation. The nonprofit provides free surgeries for patients and delivers medical equipment to providers all around the world.
4: I would like to extend our sincere thanks to Mission Brain Headquarters for the donations of equipment they gave us. The
5: organization has 52 chapters in 26 countries.
3: Many times I will land in a part of the world where there are very poor people and without saying much, we go and do surgery that allows me to stay humble.
5: He credits his success to his simple upbringing and most of all his parents.
3: They are the most hardworking people you can possibly imagine. They grew up teaching us the, the, the value of being honest of hard work, of being given, of always recognizing that no matter how difficult we may have it, there are other people who have it even more challenging. But all that success comes at a cost. I've been very, very, very successful as a brain surgeon, very successful as a scientist. But where I have failed the most is as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a son. Now I'm beginning to reflect more in all the sacrifices that my family did
5: He knows he wouldn't be where he's at today without the support
3: of his uncles back in the fields,
5: the many mentors who believed in him, and his wife, who he says primarily raised their three children. Today, Dr. Q says he's trying to be a better husband and offer useful advice to his kids.
3: Find joy in helping other people. Enjoy those little things that life gives you, friendship, family, time with each other.
5: That's what success means to Dr. Q today.
2: That was KQED's Leslie McClurg with a profile of Dr. Alfredo Quiñones Hinojosa. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon with editing help this week from Katrina Schwartz. Our producer director is Susie Racho with help this week from Jessica Carissa. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer along with Seal Muller and Catherine Monahan. And I'm Sasha Coca. You can catch all of our California stories on our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners.